listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the PuttCast. Putt is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the PuttCast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney. I am the executive director of Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency. And today we are honored and excited to have a special guest with us. I'd like to introduce Mark Bloom. He is the executive director of America's Agenda and the managing director for the PBM Accountability Project. Mark, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you, Monique. We're very excited to have you here. So you and I were just chatting before we started recording, and I was telling you a little bit about how I came to know about the PBM Accountability Project. Uh, You've been around now for how long? Me personally? Well, (laughs) I can start with you personally, but maybe start with the PBM Accountability Project. And and also... Just a little bit about you know how how it came into existence. What was the the idea that gave sure. you know birth to this group that is now here and working? Sure. PBM Accountability Project's been uh, let's see about um, nearly three years, not so long, uh, but it grew out of work that we were doing in America's Agenda before we co-founded the PBM Accountability Project with a number of partners that we we organized. Some of them unlikely partners, but folks that we brought together. Um, We always look at policy development and policy advocacy as an additive process in which we want to align interests that oftentimes you don't think of as being aligned. Um, That's ultimately how you, you win. So, I guess this odyssey began in 2016 when we had worked with public sector unions in the state of New Jersey with legislative leaders, the then president of the Senate, Steve Sweeney of the New Jersey Senate, was also president of the Iron Workers Union. Governor Christie was governor, and um, he wanted to slash public employee benefits as an instrument for balancing the state budget draconian slashes. The PBM, the uh, the public employee unions were up in arms against it. There were legislative uh, proposals to do just that presented before the legislature. And in that process, we uh, proposed a redesign of the way primary care was delivered in the state or to state employees, about 750,000 lives. Uh, those included public school teachers, state employees, police, firefighters, others. And uh, we succeeded in bringing Governor Christie together with the unions and with Republican and and Democrats under uh, the leadership of Senate President Sweeney uh, to agree on a pilot program for direct primary care 
which eliminated fee-for-service billing, provided state employees really unprecedented access to high-quality care. So after we finished that project, the unions turned to us and said, next problem, prescription drugs. Can you find a way to bring us together on that? And so happens we had a theory. Oh, really? <laughs> okay, yeah. what was the theory? <laughs> the theory was this. The state doesn't, in fact, buy drugs from pharmaceutical manufacturers, even though New Jersey is like Southeast Pennsylvania is, is those are the two home states for the pharmaceutical industry in the United States. But the manufacturing industry doesn't sell directly to the states. They sell to intermediaries called uh, pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs. The real transaction for the state at costs that were rising by multiples of tax revenues, public employee wages, even health plan costs. Um, the transactions were between the state and its PBM. In this case, it was Express Scripts International, one of the big three that dominate 80% of the prescription drug market in the United States. Actually more than 80% because many of the B-tier PBMs actually run their back offices, their pricing on technology provided by the big three. So they process considerably more than um, 80% of the uh, prescription drug transactions in the United States. So one of those big three, Express Scripts was the incumbent. And so our theory was that Express Scripts, like the other PBMs, take OptumRx or, or CVS Caremark, the other two big three, that um, they operate in fundamentally a fundamentally uncompetitive marketplace for a bunch of reasons. One is for a marketplace to work as market uh, advocates would propose to give optimal social results, you got to know the price of what you're buying. But who knows the price of what a PBM health plan is? It's hundreds, even thousands of drugs, each of those drug prices fluctuating. Of course, there are national uh, data banks that we can look at the record of price fluctuations, but there are many different prices for drugs. You can look at AWPs, which are largely invented prices that not only vary, but they're creative products of whoever is, is calculating the AWP. And you can look at other kinds of metrics. They vary, um, and they're for thousands of different drugs. So how do you know the price of a drug plan? Um, well, the short answer is the state officials that are buying their that are negotiating and buying the contract don't know. Their consultants really don't know. PBMs are predicting prices using very sophisticated big data analytics platforms that consultants and state employees don't have. They're outgunned by the PBM suppliers. PBM pricing algorithms vary from PBM to PBM. So do contract terms. So in a RFP process designed to have, to level the playing field between bidders, in fact, Different PBMs are bringing very different pricing algorithms, very different contract terms, and outgunning the state officials and their consultants who are actually trying to compare apples to bananas to lemons. They're very different offers. How do you compare the value of the different offers when you don't even know the price of what's being offered? You may know the utilization of your workforce, but you don't know the price of what you're buying for them. You can't predict the price. How do you compare those things? So here was our theory. Our theory was, let's not have an RFP. That's a request for proposals. 
uh, procurement process where you choose between the different contracts offered by PBMs. Let's let the state write a best-in-class contract. They had tried to do that before in New Jersey. A wonderful consultant uh, helped them write a best-in-class contract, but PBMs refused to bid on it. The process failed after a couple of years. But let's start with that. Let's write a best-in-class contract. Let's invite PBMs to bid on that contract. Let's use a big data analytics platform which will actually have input to it, the terms of the contract, including the pricing rules that we define and all PBMs have to homogeneously abide by. In fact, let's make PBMs have to accept the terms of our contract and our pricing rules as a condition of bidding on the state account. And then let's use the big data analytics platform to project out what the costs are of each PBM's bid using, again, homogenous terms, homogenous pricing rules, but also understanding what the utilization patterns are for that population and with an acceptable um, uh, projection of what the cost trend will be for the PBMs in the formulary. And let's have define the formulary as well, have the state define it rather than PBMs, because we know PBMs each define their own preferred formularies, um, uh, which are presumably cost maximizing for the PBM. So let's do all that, create a level playing field and use technology to, to project what the costs are of each PBM. And then here was the trick. Let's let each PBM see our projection of the costs, not only of their own bid, but of their competitors' bids. Let's give them two weeks between each bid so they can go and screw around with their own price algorithms, their own pricing metrics, and come back and try to underbid their competitors. Underbidding mean, trying to reduce our calculation of their price bids compared to our calculation of the competitor's bids. And let's have multiple rounds, kind of an eBay in reverse. So that was our theory that we could do this. There's another part of the theory. Any IT platform which could run that kind of an auction, doing quick or real-time projections of what costs of very complex PBM bids would be, has input the contract terms into it already. We should be able to deploy that contract so as each PBM invoice from whichever PBM was selected is submitted every two weeks, sometimes it's monthly, every two weeks with the requirement that the bill be paid within 48 hours. We should be able to use that same IT platform to actually adjudicate the invoices if we have the data feed that accompanies it and be able to identify not just claim by claim, but line item by line item of the determinants of each claim, whether they adhered to or violated the terms of the contract that was awarded. So we should be over the lifetime of the contract, actually be able to flag in real time any deviations from those contract terms. So we did it. Um, Express Scripts, that happened to be the incumbent in that state, actually made an offer to the Christie administration which was brought to us by the treasurer for the Christie administration, saying Express Scripts had found $20 million in savings that they could allocate to the state if they just renewed the contract rather than going through the reverse auction process. It was hard so to they, talk so, down. So just to make sure I understand, so they you proposed this system which is completely consistent with available technology, the way business is being done, 
on products that for some reason have been exempt from the business as usual processes, right? So, so it used to be, we would talk about, you know, government work, right? Lowest, lowest bidder type thing, but for some reason it's never been the case with prescription drugs. Now you've put this in place and then they come back and they say, you know, we did a little checking and we found $20 million and we'd be willing to give that to you. If you just forget this whole other process that you're trying to get us to purchase just renew and, and renew the contract right? and renew the contract. So, oh, yeah. So, so I, what I would like to do is take what you just said, which is very interesting about business as usual, how procurement usually works. Could we just sort of bookend that and put it aside? I want to tell this story. Absolutely. I want to come back and tell that. I want to respond to what you just said, because it's a very interesting comment, really, Monique. Right. Yeah, please. This is a great story. Please tell tell us more. Anyway, we got the Christie administration, their treasurer, wonderful, wonderful, smart, young Republican in the Christie administration um, to say, no, we'll pass. I had estimated, we had estimated in America's agenda that the likely savings was about 240 million, uh, about 20 million a month. Uh, but it's the first, this has never been done at a state level before. And so, you know, we argued that this is chump change. 20 million is just, that's just one month's savings. <laughs> you get 12 months of it. And it was tough. They bought it because why not be skeptical of what I was saying? It was preposterous. I was talking about a lot of savings. And uh, Express Scripts came back a few weeks later. We were told again by the Treasury, I wasn't in the room, that they had actually done a deeper dive. and They'd found $60 million, which could be saved over two years if we just renew the three-year contract. That was much tougher discussion for us and for the Treasurer. But they finally held the line. They held the line. They said, no, we're going to do this process. It's the right thing to do. I really want to give a shout out to Steve Sweeney, the president of the Senate. Legislation wasn't passed. And I just want to note that Governor Christie also came to Jesus on this. And we held the line uh, in part because the state was facing bankruptcy, a real fiscal because there was an agreement on priorities for the budget. The state was going to have to close its doors because there was no budget agreement. And the hope was that our projection on savings could actually fund not only Governor Christie's priorities, but also the legislature's priorities, which included investing in a transportation trust fund from, from, from prescription drug savings, if our projections were correct. They both said, let's go for it and keep the doors of the state open. And so they went for it. So we conducted the reverse auction. Long To make the long story short, um, I was wrong in the estimate. Uh, the state ended up saving $1.6 billion in projected savings. Wow. Your contract. Um, it was twice oh. as high as what I'd projected. It's about, about $500 million per year for the public employees alone. Um, but there's more. The adjudication that I just talked about, going through the actual charges, Optum RX won the bid. And over the process of adjudicating under that contract, uh, there were another uh, $40 million in overpayments. I don't fault um, our OptumRx. I'm not saying that there was crookedness or intentional overcharging. Overcharging happened. 
and you can understand it. They're running PBMs on very sophisticated um, IT infrastructures that are really legacy. You build updates on legacy infrastructure and you build updates on top of that. Over time, now you negotiate a contract which is very different from contracts that are your normal business model because of this. How do you go back and reprogram your very complex uh, multi-tiered computer system to accurately bill in that environment? Let's say that's what was going on. I don't know. But whatever the case, uh, the state was able to recoup considerably more. When Governor Murphy was elected, uh, somewhere between the first and second year of that PBM, uh, after the PBM uh, project, he found that the state had saved 25%. The 1.6 billion that I cited was 18.5%, uh, but in actual reality, after the adjudication, the holding the, uh, the incumbent PBM's feet to the fire in terms of accurate billing, the state saved 25%. Uh, percent of its total prescription drug spend for public school teachers and state employees it enabled them to lower their the cost of their overall healthcare premiums significantly, fund significantly the uh, transportation uh, trust program, light rail and highway improvement for the state. Taxpayers loved that because they didn't have to use taxes to do that exclusively. Gasoline taxes primarily, they could do it out of prescription drug savings and. Uh, the underfunded um, uh, pensions for public employees that would have had to be funded out of tax increases. And this is for both Democratic and Republican governors underfunding going back for, for many years, uh, was very substantially invested in uh, out of the prescription drug savings. So everybody won except Express Groups, which lost its contract to OptumRx. That's staggering. That is just staggering. So well, many questions. I feel, I feel like... I feel like this is a late night advertisement because I want to tell you, wait, there's more. Oh, please. Yes. Yeah. Let me tell Let's you just one little part more. The, the circuit court of the state of New Jersey set aside the results of the reverse auction, but the savings were so large and the contract was so big that they didn't void the contract. They just directed the administration to redo the procurement process. Governor Murphy wasn't sure if he wanted to do it again. After all, we got th this windfall, this huge windfall of, you know, billions of dollars. Uh, well, more than 1.6 billion. Uh, could we get it again? Wasn't sure that he wanted to do it. After all, it was Governor Christie's thing. He's a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm the new governor. But after Senator Sweeney, the legislature passed a reverse auction law requiring the state to do it again unanimously with both parties in the legislature voting for it. The governor didn't sign the law. He simply said, okay, okay, I'll do it again. And he just did it again. Um, and the net result was the state increased its savings at about 500 million a year, but voided the contract in the second year of the three-year agreement, and then awarded as a result of the reverse auction, a new contract for another three years. So a total of five years, they reawarded it. OptumRx won it again, but the savings to the state was increased to $2.53 billion over five years. So that's the story. That's that's incredible. I, I remember when the reverse auction, when that news came out, it sort of rippled across the country, but it was sort of a 
like a, what is a reverse auction? And did you hear about what New Jersey's doing? And I wonder how that's going to work out. And then there was, there was interest in other parts of the country on how some, something similar could happen. And I certainly would love to know if any other states have, you know, uh, approached you or tried to, to take let's you talk up about on that, that or do something. I want to talk about this book in that too. Okay. But, but how did the PBM accountability? I would just want to answer your first question, get started. We saw a number of state legislative organizations doing kind of, here's model legislation for doing a PBM reverse auction. It's really complicated and you can get screwed many ways. On the technology front, on the PBM front, there's a lot of ways you can get screwed. We were concerned that none of those, that model legislation really was adequate to get it done well, right? To replicate what New Jersey had done in various different states. And so that's one reason we founded the PBM Accountability Project to help other states draft legislation, build political coalitions to get this done. Uh, the circumstances were kind of unique as I've described in New Jersey. They're different in every other state. So really to help assemble the coalitions, write the legislation, get it enacted and get it implemented. Um, but we also wanted to go beyond that. We wanted to look at other ways to address the PBM problem. Let me just take a real long view. I think PBMs are actually transitional business entities. They're intermediaries, they're arbitrageurs in the prescription drug market. They take advantage as all arbitrageurs do of the fact that price isn't really understood or known between suppliers and demanders, so they can intermediate and make money on the difference. But if you look at where the economy's gone generally, uh, if you're a futurist, you see well, what Amazon has done to retail intermediaries. Uh, department stores have largely gone away. They're a thing of the past because people can buy directly online. You don't have to go to a department store to look at the assembly of brands, right? Uh, shopping malls have been very hurt by the existence of online purchasing because now you can do digitally directly. Uh, you go into a digitally created competitive market, which substitutes a uh, much more imperfect uh, 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 department store or, or, or shopping mall kinds of markets. You can look at much, many more uh, options. You can compare prices directly. Uh, uh, eBay is an auction, which again, disintermediated the old kinds of intermediaries by creating a direct marketplace where people could bid directly. Uh, purchasers could bid directly for what suppliers wanted to sell. PBMs are very much a department store of the prescription drug industry in that sense. They're intermediaries that I think will be disintermediated over time, but they are so big, they're so fast growing, they're so rich, it's not going to come soon enough. Yeah, I completely agree. The, the oh. level of power that they have is such that if they were, you know, uh, like an Amazon, for example, it'd be almost as if, you know, you were there trying to purchase things you needed off of Amazon and Amazon was saying, no, you can't have that. You'll have to go through our prior authorization process before you can buy those bed sheets or no, you can't have that because your employer doesn't want you to have that or, you know, whatever excuse You're that they've exactly come up with. Exactly right. You're exactly right. So that's a great analogy. And so we wanted to think into the future, what in the PBM Accountability Project is, what does a post-PBM world look like? What do we want it to look like? And let's back up and talk about PBMs, not just in reverse auction, which is one technique to create a quasi marketplace using technology, but also to think about other ways we wanna change that marketplace 
so that it could become optimized in the future with or without a PBM. And so that led us to looking at, at fiduciary accountability of PBMs. It led us to be looking at how PBMs report data and how unrigorous and incomplete that reporting is, which, which stops uh, legislators, for example, from being able to scrutinize and pass optimal policy about the industry. Uh, we began to look at, uh, at, for example, the deep concentration of the PBM industry and wondering if antitrust law might have to be applied. That's a tool that exists right now. Um, uh, so we began looking at many different, at what a post-PBM world could look like, but coming closer to the here and now, looking at a, a range of policies that could have real effect in, in making prescription drugs more affordable to people who have to buy them, and also preserving competition, not only at the PBM or wholesaler level, but also at the retail pharmacy level, where many of your members uh, live and breathe and work. Uh, so those all became our, the purview of the PBM Accountability Project. We did, however, still have a focus on doing reverse auctions. So we 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 wrote and we drafted with our legislative partners, of course, and built campaigns in several states. And uh, and good legislation was passed in the state of Maryland just in 2020, uh, and the state of New Hampshire in 2020. Maryland just before the close down of the legislature for COVID. And uh, in, in, um, in March, the last bill that passed the legislature was the PBM reverse auction bill, New Hampshire in June of 2020. And then last year in 2021, um, we built uh, with partners, we built a coalition of, uh, of allies in Minnesota and passed PBM legislation. They're in the middle of doing their PBM reverse auction right now, just finished round two of bidding. I think all three rounds will be complete by the end of this month. We'll see what the outcome is. Colorado passed legislation also, and next year Colorado's will go. Maryland's was to go last year, but this, the Department of Budget and Management in Colorado uh, has um, slow walked, really didn't want to do it. You know, this is interesting, but the civil service, the departments that are responsible for PBM procurement in every state we've worked, even New Jersey, New Hampshire, Maryland, Minnesota, Colorado, the states where folks have spent decades procuring PBM contracts, interestingly, not changing them very much. You know, over 90% of PBM contracts are renewed with the incumbent. Because if you don't know the value of what you're buying, you're gonna buy based on relationships, not on value. You might have seen that. Uh, we've seen it in the union space. We've seen it in the public sector space that there's a belief that I've got the best deal and I really trust my PBM supplier to give me the best deal because there are no objectifiable, let me put it this way, empirical tools to evaluate the value you're getting and compare it to alternatives. So you go with your relationship. That's what generally happens. So for civil... Uh, for the, the folks that actually procure PBMs, there's a lot of hostility to say, let's do it a different way. Especially if you looked at the results that we got in New Jersey compared to the results beforehand. Um, you don't want that to happen in my state to me. That'll make me look like an idiot. Well, they aren't idiots. They're doing the best they can with the tools available to them. 
and with absolute ignorance of the actual costs of the contracts they're trying to procure because they don't have the tools to evaluate. Um, and they're operating without any meaningful competition. So they've done really well given they were completely outgunned by their PBMs, uh, their PBM incumbents. I absolutely um, agree. There's a huge degree of information asymmetry that exists in the purchasing process. And I think that's true with state procurement. I think it's absolutely true in the private sector. As you're describing this and you're talking about these relationships, I'm thinking about how, I, I don't know that there's one holy grail in the pursuit of PBM reform. The one thing, like if you just got that, the rest of it would somehow find its way into you know, that evolution, right? But I, I think the, what's that? I'm sorry, what's that? I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> I couldn't agree the, with you more. The relationship thing is one that that I, I've been frustrated with for years now because you know I, I have uh, I've been in stakeholder meetings where you know I'm called upon to if I present a fact I'm called upon to cite my source the PBM the oppositions the health plans you know they're all there sitting around the table and and they'll just you know throw out their own sourced facts their own data right and and no one's asking where did that come from and it, and it's not because they're you know somehow complicit in not asking that question it's like it's like it is so complicated that the people who buy couldn't possibly begin to know everything they're supposed to know to make that purchase if you knew everything you were supposed to know to make that purchase you wouldn't be the purchaser of that you'd be in some other you know, profession, I don't know, maybe you'd be the executive director of PUT or, you know, managing director of the accountability, PBM accountability project, or I don't know, maybe you'd be Elon Musk, but it's so, it's been the, I would say the bane of our existence here at PUT. And I'm just kind of curious if you've had any luck in helping people understand what they don't know when it comes to procurement, especially with this huge success in New Jersey and Maryland. Sounds like Maryland will be well, on. In Maryland, they, they, still they still haven't done it. The next uh, state up to complete one will be Minnesota. We'll know at the end of this month. So I we'll did, again then. I, I have a follow-up question. I, I, I want to go back to New Jersey for a second. So many questions about New Jersey. How, how long did it take for those results to start coming in? Once they committed, once the contract was, you know, with Optum was signed, sealed, and delivered, was it a year? Was it two years? I'm just, you know, we, we get this question a lot at PUT when, when looking for information on what other states have done. We don't always know because it takes a little while. I'm just curious how long it took in New Jersey before they saw those savings. Immediately. Mm. Wow. Month to month, as I told you, it, it was a uh, um, half a billion uh, uh, dollars. Uh, I'm sorry, $500 million per month. Wow, that's incredible. I'm just curious why other states aren't, you know, oh, I, I take it rushing back. I, to New Jersey. <laughs> I, 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 I'm very, very sorry. It was a half a billion dollars, 500 million a year on average. A year, that's a year that's on average. Substantial. But it came in at a monthly rate. It mm -hmm. came in at a monthly rate. Um, it happened immediately. As, as I told you, the governor um, announced... Um, about 18 months into his, uh, after the first reverse auction is, was done, but it was only a few months into the governor's new governor's tenure that they had saved 25% over the first year of the project. So that's fast. 
That's incredible. You know, we, we follow what happens in the different states. I've watched with enormous interest, as I think anyone who knows anything about the PBM problem in this country has watched the state of Ohio and Dave Yost and what he's been doing, the various lawsuits. And there are other attorneys generals now following the steps of Leslie Rutledge, you know, that are uh, now they're, they're jumping on this cause and starting to look to see what what fraud, waste, or abuse might have been, you know, being perpetuated in their states, which is also, you know, really exciting. And yet somehow still we're in this situation. I was, I, before we started recording, you and I were talking a little bit about what has been happening here in my own home state of Arizona and how uh, a bill to stop PBM steering of patients to PBM owned pharmacies. This is a this has been a, a, a popular uh, topic this year and, and something many states have been looking at. The bill here in Arizona was stopped. And, and you know, what came up were things like the employee health plan and how the employee health plan was going to be the sacrificial lamb to this and it was going to cost the state. They said at first $6 billion, it was some crazy number out of nowhere. And then they, you know, brought that down to just a few hundred million dollars and of course, in a in a state where no one's really looked at this before, that can be a great big, you know, scary number. I'm just curious, how has the opposition been reacting to the work you've been doing? Have they talked to you at all? Have they come in and tried to, uh, I don't know, discredit your work or any things you've been doing? In the state of New Jersey, well, recognize this. We're talking politics now. Okay, recognize that. In the public sector, where I've been working principally, and the unions we work with are public sector unions, we've been working at the state level, that say for the state employees account, it's, it's relatively big in, in most states. In New Jersey, it was 750,000 lives. So a large account, even for a PBM. That PBMs don't really have constituencies. You said it earlier, uh, in our discussions before we began the taping, that a lot of folks don't even know what a PBM is. If you don't know what a PBM is, then you're not a political supporter of PBMs. So the incumbent PBM in, in the public sector has uh, no political constituency outside of the Department of State Government that contracted it. They tend to be captive audiences. Everything they know about prescription drug pricing and procurement, they learn from their incumbent PBM. That's their university. That's where they learn what they do and learn to believe with their PBM that what they do is the best thing that can be done for the people of the state. So the constituency that, that we have found that the incumbent PBM has is actually the department does contracting with PBMs but beyond that, nothing. People don't know what they are. People don't have any loyalty to them. People are pissed at whoever they think is responsible for driving up drug prices that may be manufacturers, that may be my lousy health plan, that may be my employer. Um, uh, it's not the PBM because they've never heard of the PBM. So in that environment, PBMs don't really have a constituency except for the entrenched part of the state civil service that does procurement and doesn't want to be made to look bad through adoption of another mousetrap that shows better results. That's understandable. I don't blame them. 
you know, I, I, I feel sorry for the situation they're in, quite frankly. But I, I understand their opposition. But their opposition can be terrifying. It can be relentless. Politically, everything they say that comes out of their mouths is scripted by their incumbent PBM because that's how they know. That's, that's, where the, that's the source of knowledge for whatever they know about prescription drug procurement. So that's what you're dealing with. So we didn't find in New Jersey it was very difficult to build a bipartisan coalition, including the governor and the state legislature, because everybody wanted to save money to fund their own priorities. And once they believed the money was that big, and it was even bigger than we projected, everybody was willing to take a risk. Now, how big a risk? It depends how deeply you believed. In New Jersey, nobody had anywhere to go because there was no, there was nowhere to go. The state literally closed its doors over the Independence Day holiday in 2017, closed its doors. They ran out of money because there was no budget deal. Governor Christie went off to the beach. The beach was closed, but he and his family were sunning oh, the beach. I you remember know? that. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So everything was closed down. And then we concluded the reverse auction during that furlough, during that closed down of state government, $1.6 billion. Guess what? The legislature reconvened. The governor came back to Trenton. And we had a budget based on the savings. So the objections of the Department of Pension and Benefits in New Jersey, which was the procurement agency, simply evaporated because the gains to everybody else, to taxpayers, to Republicans, Democrats, to the governor, to all the programs that the governor supported or the, the legislators supported, everybody, to the unions, everybody, everybody won except for Express Script, which lost its account to OptumRx. So not very difficult. In, uh, in Maryland, they still haven't done the reverse auction because the department that actually does the procurement testified against the bill after it passed with an overwhelmingly bipartisan majority. And Governor Hogan hasn't cared enough to make his bureaucracy do the reverse auction. So they keep on reporting to oversight committees, the legislature saying we're doing it. They're actually two years behind the statutory schedule for doing it right now. Still haven't done it. Wow. There's going to be a general election this, this May. So that's the power of the department that does procurement to just kind of gum up the wheels of government and fly in the face. I mean, really literally thumb their noses at the statutory calendar, which was passed in, uh, into law by, by the Maryland Assembly. Yeah. New Hampshire, in New Hampshire, similar opposition from that department. Governor Sununu was there. His department objected. They fought it every bit of the way. We won with unanimous vote of the Senate, bipartisan Democrat and Republican, and uh, overwhelming majority of the, uh, of the House uh, of Representatives in, in the state of, uh, of New Hampshire. Governor Sununu signed it without a lot of, you know, he didn't, he was kind of uh, agnostic. He signed the bill to his credit and let the state, the department that ran, that opposed the reverse auction, run it without any real political pressure on them. They went off to hire a first time technology company that had never done a reverse auction that offered them a, a very low price. There are real questions about their technical capability to run the reverse auction. It was done without any transparency. To this mm -hmm. date, there has never been a public report made of how much savings there were or wasn't. The department said there were no savings, and they reawarded the contract to the uh, uh, to the incumbent, which was Express Scripts in that case, by the way. So, what do you learn from that? 
In New Jersey, there were some conditions that didn't apply in New Hampshire, and it led New Jersey to implementing it well. So we thought about that in the PBM Accountability Project, and we put a number of improvements in the law. Uh, let me give you Minnesota's case, for example. We required that whoever the technology provider was could not only would have a common contract with pricing rules, but also the technology provider would have the capacity to compare AWB-based pricing, GNC-based pricing, NADAC-based pricing metrics, a variety of different kinds of pricing metrics used. You know NADAC, your pharmacists uh, certainly know NADAC. Uh, it's an objective pricing metric that really can prevent a lot of the shenanigans that happen with interpretation and creation of AWP pricing. It's, it's a really interesting and I think an objectively superior pricing metric to use. But we required, but we knew the big three weren't going to use NADAC. It's B tier. They call them B tier, but it's some very scrappy, uh, high value alternative PBMs that have introduced NADAC. So we wanted in Minnesota for, for NADAC price based PBMs to be able to compete with the big three. And so we required that, for example, uh, that didn't exist in New Jersey. Uh, it didn't exist in New Hampshire. In New Hampshire, the reason th that we became aware of the problem was the state with its consultant, the consultant, by the way, besides the department, the consultant, that department also has a vested interest in keeping the status quo and opposing change, right? Uh, because running the procurement process, the RFP process, is a line of business for them. The PBM reverse auction is, in fact, an alternative empirically-based method of doing procurement. You do them out of a business line. And it also makes them look like they didn't do so good in the past, right? So no surprise that they're opposed to it too. So, so uh, the uh, consultant advised that only top tier AWP-based PBMs compete in New Hampshire, and that's what they got. And one of them was chosen, the incumbent. So in we'll see what the outcome is in Minnesota. It may be one of the top three, it may be an AWP-based, it may be a, a NADAC-based metric or another metric, but they're all required. In Colorado, similarly, we required multiple pricing metrics to be adopted. So, And by the way, that really helped in Minnesota, where the independent pharmacists, the association that represents them, joined our campaign, which was you know, a campaign to change PBM procurement for the public employee unions, who would be the beneficiaries of the savings in their health plan. And the same in Colorado. Um, uh, I don't know that the independent uh, pharmacists actually, they didn't join our campaign in Colorado. Um, uh, there was a lot of chatter about NADAC pricing. That's actually in the legislation. Uh, but uh, again, those same features that we, we upgraded the earlier New Hampshire legislation to account for the, the abuse, the the, the really bad implementation in New Hampshire so that it couldn't recur. Another change is we asked that uh, in, in uh, Minnesota and uh, that uh, or we required in the law that the public sector unions would be the beneficiaries of the savings actually participate with the state that was doing the, the department is doing the procurement as partners in every stage of the implementation process. So there would be outside eyes and ears on how the thing was being implemented 
and we could assure that the results would actually be validated and recognized as legitimate by the union beneficiaries as well as by the, the uh, State Department. So we wouldn't have another New Hampshire on our hands. And uh, at public oversight hearings just about a month ago, the unions, the state uh, health plan representatives called CGIP, that's the State Employees Insurance Group, testified before uh, Republicans and Democrats in the Oversight Committee that, in fact, they were working very well together. They worked together in New Hampshire also because uh, there was a statute that required plan design changes to be approved by a joint committee of unions and the state. In New Hampshire, there was no history of that. Uh, in Colorado, we're still hoping that unions will be partners with the state. And uh, we know that NADAC and other pricing metrics will be used. Um, uh, in Maryland, we've learned a lot. In Maryland, independent pharmacists came in the day of the hearing when New Hampshire legislative leadership, Senator Sweeney, in fact, came down to speak to his, <coughs> excuse me, colleagues in uh, Maryland to describe their experience in New Jersey, like I've been doing with you today, and overwhelmingly endorsed. Uh, the pharmacists, stood up one after another and opposed it because it wasn't NADAC priced. So uh, that wasn't in the legislation at the time. So we met with them and we argued, and it's in the legislation, that pharmacists should have a seat at the table uh, on the drug price advisory committee for the state uh, and should have a voice at the table in implementing the reverse auction. Uh, I'm very pleased that the pharmacists actually joined the campaign and we had a uh, united alliance of pharmacists along with unions, along with legislative Republicans and Democrats in running the reverse auction there. That's, That's the way we should run it in every state. That's great. And thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that pharmacists should have a seat at the table. I think what has uh, in some ways led to the problems that we have now is that there are, you know, key members of the of the supply chain if you will and they get left out uh their voices get left out and so you alluded to having the member we didn't allude to you directly said having the unions come in and have a seat at the table having the pharmacists have a seat at the table i think it's been a case so often where you know we we don't give our our patients adequate time and we don't really give our providers adequate time and and a while back you'd mentioned how uh, someone will get upset. They don't know why the the price of the drug is so much, and and you know it's the pharmacists who are in this unfortunate position of having to be the one who breaks the news to the patient. The pharmacist who has not set the parameters of the health plan. They do not have control over the price of the drug. They don't have they have no markup on the drug if the drug is coming through on a health plan. But they're the ones that are you know there. Yes, patient. Yeah. Right, exactly right. And in some states, fewer and fewer, fortunately, pharmacists are actually gagged from explaining what's going on. I don't know what, what the status of the gag laws are on pharmacists in, in Arizona, though. You know, the so there's the, the Right to Know Act, this federal law that was signed by the Trump administration, and it is supposed to apply in every state to every health plan. And yet we still keep finding examples state by state where you know, pharmacists are still getting in trouble for talking to patients. And, and then there's this whole other type of gag clause, which doesn't get talked about, which is the pharmacist talking to 
the plan payer about what's going on because you know certainly from their position behind the counter, there's information that's available to them about the health plan. There are certain things you can put two, to, two and two together on the patient's copay, you know, what the pharmacy is being reimbursed at. And then, you know, perhaps with a, a glance at the explanation of benefits, you can almost get a sense of how much the, or, or maybe even directly get a sense of how much the payer is paying. And so often the payer is paying so much more than they should be paying for this medication. Well, and they you know, don't know why. It's not a secret we, we revealed in our in our paper on the evolving business models of, of, of PBMs. It was actually the, you know, it came to public attention, I think, yes, through the uh, uh, investigation of the, uh, the U.S. Senate Finance Committee, uh, looking at the pricing of uh, for diabetics of insulin. And of the many abuses of diabetics in this area, we could talk about a number of them. One of them is uh, to charge copays based on the list price that nobody pays, except for the patient pays a copay or coinsurance based on a list price. Uh, the PBM isn't paying the list price. They've got rebates and other discounts, fees, and et cetera. Um, uh, the uh, health plan is presumably not paying the list price. Uh, uh, the uh, the patient is paying a copay based on the list price in many, many drug transactions. Nobody else is. That's just straight abuse. By the way, you called it fraud, waste, fraud, and abuse, and, and mentioned AG uh, Yost in Ohio and, mm -hmm. and other states, uh, attorneys general going after it. And, you know, I applaud what they're doing, but we have to recognize they're doing good prosecutorial work. The assertion that somehow statutes have been violated. Um, it's important to do that. But fundamentally, the problem is not criminal behavior here. It's a perfectly legal, currently, business model that allows PBMs to exploit a dysfunctional prescription drug marketplace in which they have the privilege to be an arbitrageur and divert savings that were initially intended to be passed through to purchasers patients and their health plans. That was the initial value proposition of PBMs. We'll aggregate demand and use that demand to leverage down pricing from, from uh, manufacturers. They did that very successfully. But at some point they recognized that we can divert those savings through artificially complex pricing algorithms, for example, and other techniques into our own bank accounts rather than passing them through. And because we're in non-competitive markets, we're really in oligopoly markets that are now vertically integrated, as well as having three, just three, own 80% of the marketplace, they don't have, competition doesn't come into effect, enforcing them to give those savings back in order to be able to sell. No, in a non-competitive market, they've, they're able to, uh, in essence, arbitrage, extraordinary profit margins, rather than passing those through on the savings and not worry about competition, forcing them to give it back. And it's terrible because we're not talking about diamonds or, you know, cars or, or, you know, the kinds of things that maybe you feel like you need it. You don't really, you know, you can have it. We're talking about medicine. We're talking about Life-saving medicine. Life, right. Yes. And we're also not talking about illegal behavior. We're talking about business practices that are currently perfectly legal. 
it's PBM hubris that causes them to go over the line even then, even after they're getting so rich legally, so that states' attorneys generals really have, you know, a basis for prosecuting and usually not convicting, usually settling short of, of trial. That's that's just an expression of the extreme hubris. But the business model itself is an exploitation of your right patients who are seeking life-saving medicines in a marketplace that doesn't work in favor of, of purchasers, doesn't work at all, doesn't work in favor of consumers. It's exactly totally right. act in the favor of not manufacturers either, although they have some explaining to do and some responsibility <laughs> to share. I'm not denying that. But here we're talking about it's actually the market intermediaries, the go-betweens, that are actually the fastest growing component, responsible for the fastest growing component of overall prescription drug costs. Agreed. And you know, the more that I've learned about middlemen just in general over the years, the more I've seen what an acceptable business model that is across all categories. You can have these middlemen who take huge percentages of what the person performing the service or the organization performing the service would rightfully be making. And, you know, we could talk about that forever. There's a whole other thing I'd love to talk to you about, but I'm feeling like we're just going to have to have you come back for a part two and maybe part three of this conversation. But it's, it's the educating lawmakers, educating benefits, buyers, unions, consumers, that this is not a competitive market. There's this belief that somehow there was just more competition, you know, in our, we have this capitalist economy and, and, but what we have in healthcare is a controlled market. There's, it's not a, it's not a free market and it's not a free market for, for several reasons, but um, with these PBMs that, you know, come to the table with 80 or more percent of the, the, it's 80, they, they process something like 80 or more percent of all the prescriptions that come through, but they come to the table with an enormous segment of covered lives, and that's the market. And if you're a healthcare provider, if you're a pharmacist, or, or really if you're any healthcare provider and you want to have a patient to provide care for, you've got to sign on with this entity Otherwise, you won't have patients to care for. And that's the start of the problem. And it only gets worse from there. You get these non-negotiable contracts with incredibly terrible terms to them. And then trying to explain to somebody who could do something about it, why you were required to sign this contract, why is it take it or leave it contract it becomes its whole other, you know. Um, and what the impact is. Well, I'm glad, glad you raised that. And you're right. We could have a whole conversation about education of the public because to me that's synonymous with with what effective politics is political practices it's about aligning of interests but often people don't understand they understand what their interests are i want affordable drugs but they don't understand how those interests can be aligned with other interests in a pluralistic democratic society right so what really the job of an effective political practitioner is, uh, is to find out how we can align the interests of political actors and build a coalition of aligned interests. You may not love each other, you may be opposed on other interests, but on the issue in question, 
we've aligned enough interests. So the force to transform is greater than the force defending the status quo. That's what it is. That is an educational process. When our success, the success we've had, and it's not big enough success yet, but the successes that we've had to date and the coalitions that we build in the states and that we're building nationally um, grows out of America's agendas work, a union-led alliance of employers. We bargain with those employers at the table. Wages, uh, we bargain over wages back and forth. Employers often see it as a zero-sum game. Over the long run, unions may argue that higher wages mean you attract and keep better employees. But there's real competition off of that, over that. But there's real competition over health costs, including prescription drug costs and benefits. Uh, because if you accept the costs are rising at rates four to five times higher than wages and by a multiple of corporate revenues as well over time, and that's what it's been, if that's happening, damn, the, the health costs, are, the prescription drug costs being the fastest growing component of it, are actually competing with wages for us. We're getting more and more wage stagnation because more and more of the compensation comes being drained into paying health benefits. Employers are trying because they're dealing with health benefits costs that they didn't create. It's an external marketplace simply to shift those costs onto workers. And if unions and employers are simply fighting over who's going to pay the cost, that is fighting over cost shifting, we never get to yes, right? Labor relations become very acrimonious. If, on the other hand, we focus on identifying what the problem is and developing solutions to that problem and align everybody behind solving the problem, well, then collective bargaining, which is otherwise acrimonious between employers and labor, becomes a negotiation over how do we share the savings we've created together? That's a much happier conversation than who's going to pay the costs that are growing at four times the rate of wages, right? So our job in America's agenda in healthcare transformation, healthcare policy reform has always been about educating parties about what the problem actually is, aligning their interests, moving out together in an alliance to solve the problems, and then talking about how we share the savings that result. In the area we're talking about here, about the PBM problem, it's the same thing. We've got a process of understanding how the PBM business model works, who's getting screwed by whom. If you're one of the screwees, the people that's getting screwed, whether you're an independent pharmacist, whether you're in a community that's losing competition between retail pharmacists because big box retail pharmacy, which is owned by PBMs, which themselves are owned or, or, or own the big three insurance companies, which are in fact multinational conglomerates. If you realize that that's what's screwing you, then you can start to think about how do I as an employee in my union, my employer, an independent pharmacist, political leaders that really want to solve the problem, maybe relying on your vote to do it, can all come together and say, wow, we we're opposed on so many issues, but on this issue, we now understand our interests are aligned and we've come together in alignment on a strategy to solve it. So that's what our mission is in America's agenda and in the PBM Accountability Project.
And that's why I'm so thrilled to talk to you and your audience today, because, because there may be allies out there that simply don't understand what you're trying to do. And also, they may be trying to combat the same, the effects of the same problems that your members are, but you don't understand fully how they're thinking about it and doing it. Our alliances are created, our coalitions are created so we can educate one another, align our interests around common solutions, and then win them. So I'm thrilled to have this conversation with you. Amen to that. That's wonderful. Oh my gosh. So many, so many questions and we're coming to the, we're coming to the time limit of this, of this show. So for sure, I'm just going to tell you right now, you're going to have to come back. So we're going to get our, our calendars aligned so that I can have you come back and we can uh, delve more into some of the things that we've been talking about today. Uh, you said something I found really intriguing early on. And so I thought this would be a great question to, to wrap up this conversation with, and then maybe even open up our next conversation with, but you, sure. you mentioned earlier about a, a post PBM world. I think that's how you put it. What does a post PBM world look like in your view? And what would that, what would that mean for, for us, for the healthcare system, for patients, for providers? Imagine a world for a second, go back in time. Let's go back to the future. Imagine a world in which there are no used car dealers. You need a car, you can't afford a new one, but oh my God, you've got to go to a used car parking lot and deal with a used car dealer. You know the stereotype. Oh, yes. Stereotype based on a real experience is a lousy experience. You don't actually know the cost of what you're buying. You don't know the history of it. You don't really know what competitive costs are. I'm saying you're rolling back 10 or 15 years now. It's not CarMax, it's not Carvana. That's a very different world, isn't it? Where you're able to actually digitally online answer all those questions and enter into a moderated marketplace where sellers are selling their cars, you're buying your cars, you're assured of the accuracy of the information that you're getting and the price you're paying is the best price that's available at the time you're looking for that car. It's a very different experience. I'm not trying to sell CarMax or Carvana. I'm not trying to sell Amazon or eBay. I'm just saying, we're talking about a world in which intermediary arbitrageurs like used car salesmen are no longer necessary. What does that market look like? What kind of information do you need to have to operate in that marketplace? What kind of rules keep it safe from waste, fraud, and abuse? That's what a PBM, a post-PBM world could look like. That's very well said. And all of a sudden, I'm beginning to think about why PBM patient steering to PBM-owned pharmacies is such an important thing to them. Do we have a moment to talk about it? Just yeah. a few seconds. Yeah, please. We just published a, a, a paper called Understanding the Evolving Business Models and Revenue of PBMs. Yes, yes, you did. I meant to ask about that. Please, yeah, go we, on. Sure. We looked at it. You can see it on, on the website of the PBM Accountability Project. I think it's pbmaccountability.org. Uh, please go and take a look at it, uh, any of your listeners. I, I hope you find it interesting. We looked at all the publicly available financial information about PBMs over the period of 2017 to 2019. And it was a very interesting period. It's the most recently available 
most comprehensive of what's publicly available, we had to go back a few years to two. We, we couldn't get any more current than we did it last year in 2021, but 2019 was as, as recently as we get that the full scope of the publicly available information. So we looked at it, but it was also interesting because it's a period when the game, the PBM game of retaining rebates rather than passing through to customers had become known and there was increasing pressure uh, in the public sector. In Congress, senators like Wyden had the you know, legislation. Uh, I, think it, I think Wyden's legislation was called the see-through bill, which required mandates to be passed through. At one time, the Trump administration, for all the crappy things they did in the area of healthcare, uh, they had a pass through the rebate uh, bill. And, uh, and their position was we're doing something really great to change the PBM industry and give value to consumers. The, the point was in the private sector, in many of the unions and employers that are sophisticated negotiators, more sophisticated negotiators with their PBMs, had already required pass through of rebates. Many were coming back. You know, the PBA, PBMs used to pass through only 65% of rebates. You negotiate a PBM contract. Now they're passing through 95%. And you're going, wow, look at that, a 30% increase in the rebate pass through. They're passing through 95%, almost all of them. What a great contract. Still, your costs go up and you wonder why. And the reason is PBMs are giving you the money with that hand, but they're taking it back with another hand. Our study from 2017 to 19 showed that PBMs were in fact had a 64% uh, increase in pass-through of rebates, mainly in the commercial market, much less so in the public sector market, but 64% net uh, reduction in retained rebates or increase in pass-through of rebates to their customers in that period. That's phenomenal. Everybody should have been seeing big reductions in their in their prescription drug costs, right? But it didn't happen. So what was going on? One thing is the data shows us that PBMs began to increase the non-administrative fees they charge to pharmaceutical manufacturers who build those fees into their costs, of course. And to health plans, non-administrative fees increased by 51% at the same time as rebate pass-throughs increased by 64%. So wow. they took it with one hand and they took a large portion of those fees back with the other hand. But that doesn't explain all of it, right? We still see billions of dollars in increase in PBM revenues, even though they're passing through 64% increase in, in rebates. In other words, the rebate pass-through game is history in the commercial market. If you're an aggressive negotiator, that was, you know, over the last 10 years, you've already won that game. PBMs are very adaptable. Uh, Shapeshifters, uh, they're very creative in creating other games in very complex pricing algorithms where they can give you money and then take it back with another game. PBMs are playing, they get multiple sources of revenues from the same drug transaction. Um, many corporate uh, and union, I will say, uh, purchasers together in Taft-Hartley plans, who are co-governing the plans, um, look at rebates as the whole game and, um, that isn't what's going on. Uh, so I, I just told you that 51% increase in fees, non-administrative fees assessed to health plans as well as to manufacturers, one way they took it back. PBMs also increased their rate of profits in PBM-owned pharmacies 
by 16% over the same period, another piece of the way they took back money. There's another bunch of games. Uh, your pharmacists know some of them very well. Effective guarantees, clawbacks uh, from pharmacists where, where pharmacists would be guaranteed a certain rate of payment from PBMs. Uh, but of course, if certain metrics are met and if they're not met, the PBM claws back and pharmacists end up not yes. getting the revenues they project. Quote unquote that's, performance that, fees. That's a game. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of games. Right. So there's a whole bunch of games like that. Spread pricing is another one. Um, uh, that PBMs actually don't report in detail in publicly available documents. They're lumped into a category which are called other revenue sources that constitute 40% of total PBM revenues. Now, the other revenue source I want our friends in the corporate world to understand, take spread pricing. All it is is the PBM is reimbursing the pharmacy for dispensing a drug to a health plan member at a lower rate and they're actually charging the health plan for that same transaction. In other words, if they're arbitrageurs, PBMs are arbitrageurs in the first place between the drug manufacturers and the health plan, they're also arbitrageurs between the, the uh, drug manufacturers or their wholesaler or, or the wholesalers and the pharmacy. Your members know that well. They're also arbitrageurs in spread pricing between the pharmacist and the health plan again. The health plan has just been hit twice by the PBM. They're focused only on rebate passers. The money's been taken back in several other ways that they simply didn't know. Yes, education is, is, is really, really, uh, uh, really uh, important here. But we come back to the pharmacies. I, that was your question. 16% has come from pharmacies. We also know that the big three PBMs all own specialty pharmacies. That's a growing part of the business practices. These vertically integrated organizations own the commercial insurance companies that, by the way, sell the ASO networks to corporations, unions, to others uh, in uh, self-funded plans that are renting their fee-for-service networks. Those are now, those same commercial entities own PBMs or are owned by PBMs. So now you can see profit shifting between the insurance company and the PBM. Knock the PBM, the insurance company can take it back and vice versa. Um, you see it's going between the PBM piece of the puzzle, the arbitrageur piece of the puzzle and the pharmacies, which now PBMs own. So in a vertically integrated organization, you can squeeze the PBM the way we used to define PBMs, but they can recoup the profits OptumRx, the biggest ins uh, commercial insurance plan, private commercial insurance plan in the country. Um, I, I'm sorry, United Healthcare, the biggest commercial insurance plan in the country, owns OptumRx, one of the big three uh, PBMs, uh, and they own providers, specialty drugs, as do the other CVS, Caremark, obviously uh, uh, owns uh, CVS. Uh, pharmacies as well as specialty uh, uh, pharmacies of various kinds. And now their GPOs, the group purchasing organization that used to be an organization you subscribe to in order to get even better discounts, uh, you pay dues to, but now each PBM owns its own GPA. Go figure that one out. Two of the big three are located in foreign countries where we can't scrutinize them. So yes, how does a PBM directing you to its own specialty pharmacy end up saving you money? I'm an economist. I don't have an answer to that question. It doesn't. <laughs> no, and that'll be that that will be the topic among I think 16 others that you've brought up in this this one conversation 
that we'll tackle again. This has been an incredible conversation, Mark. Thank you so much for the generous sharing of your your thoughts and your knowledge and your experience. Uh, you know, I I know I have so far to go in my own knowledge, and you have contributed greatly to me and greatly to our listeners. Thank you so very much for everyone listening. We would love your comments. And if you heard that growling in the back, that would be my dog boxer who hates PBMs as much as the rest of us who are listening do. Uh, Please check out pbmaccountability.org. Please check out the work this incredible organization is doing. And please join us next time on the podcast. Thank you all so much.